Hey everybody, Coach Jonathan here, and welcome to a sneak peek of a new podcast from us here at Trainer Road. It's called the Successful Athletes Podcast, and it's where we interview individuals who have done something extraordinary on the bike, whether that's winning a race, whether that's getting a PR, or something interesting or noteworthy in any way that they have done on the bike, we'll interview those athletes, we'll dissect their preparation and their execution so that hopefully we can learn something from these performances that will make us faster cyclists and multi-sport athletes. Now, this will be an entirely different podcast from the Ask a Cycling Coach podcast. But right now, like I said, you're going to get a sneak peek at the first episode with Keegan Swenson. And in the coming couple weeks here, you're going to get more episodes coming out when the podcast is actually released. So stay tuned to trainerroad.com slash forum for more news from that. And I hope you enjoy this episode with the current Everesting world record holder, Keegan Swenson. Welcome to a new podcast by Trainer Road, the successful athletes podcast where we dig into the performances of athletes who've done something that's noteworthy, uh, respectable, or just plain awesome in one way or another. And for this first episode, we have Stan's Pivots, Key and Monster Hydro's Keegan Swenson. What's up, Keegan? How's it going? Uh, we are going to talk about your, I guess, latest achievement that you just did, and it, it was uh, an Everesting attempt, correct? It was. Uh, can yeah. you dig into it a little bit? Uh, what was your time and, and, and everything else? Yeah, so uh, the official time from Hell's 500 <laughs> was uh, 7 hours and 40 minutes, I think 5 seconds. That's really fast. Uh, yeah. And what is Everesting to give people uh, some context? Yeah, so, uh, so Everesting is, I guess, riding your bike one continuous time for 29,029 feet or more if you want. <laughs> this and one turned out to be 29,600 i think was my final number there are other rules too too right like you you have to repeat a climb uh to do it yeah so to, you have to repeat a climb to do it you can't have like big descents on the way back down so you can't have any momentum to get like free climb like free elevation for example mm-hmm. so, and you so ha- as, your segment can be as long as or as short as you want so. got it so it has to be like a, you can't have a loop it has to be a turnaround basically at the base of it is the, exactly. the intent Yeah, to make your, you climb and earn every single foot of it. So yeah. in a perfect world, you'd have a wall ride or something at the bottom to like yeah. weigh a lot, but that's not, <laughs> not <laughs> no excuse. Yeah. So, uh, you got the world record, right? I did. And yeah. what in the world wanted you or made you want to do this? <laughs> yeah. It's kind of funny. Um, like the last couple months I've been just like pondering, something to do. I was like, man, it's been a while since I've done something like big and kind of gnarly and hard. And there's without racing going on, I really have been like chomping at the bit to do something to really like push myself. Um, and like you talked a bit about Everesting before and that's kind of where I got the idea. <laughs> I was like, I wonder like if I could get the Everesting like fastest time, like that would be pretty cool. You know, like and I knew the time was somewhere around, I think it was just under nine hours, right? Like eight fifty nine. Yep. Um, so my original plan was to go like most of the way up Pine Canyon and do like 12 reps, I think was the initial plan. And then Phil Gaiman went and ripped the record to pieces by doing sub eight. And I was like, well, back to the drawing board. We're going to have to scrap everything I just planned <laughs> and try again to go faster because that plan was maybe going to be eight and a half at the best. Yeah. Um, so I talked to you and you uh, helped me come up with the fastest possible segment on the road I wanted to do it. I wasn't going to do it anywhere else. Pine Canyon is gnarly. It's steep. It's my, my home turf. So that's where I wanted to do it. So. Yeah. Let's talk about the route and the selection and everything else. Pine Canyon also, some people call it empire pass, right? Mm-hmm. And, yeah, and okay. it's been used in the tour of Utah before. 
Yeah, almost every year. And it's a climb basically from, from Midway, Utah up and over to a very high pass over. And then you drop back down to park city, Utah. You can either go to park city or you can go left and climb for another 15 ish minutes and then go drop big Cottonwood Canyon to salt Lake. Yep. So, so it's basically the top of the Wasatch mountains more or less is where mm -hmm. you're climbing up to the top of that. Uh, what made you, we, we talked about the fact that it's your home turf and, and, we also talked about how you had to change it to make it even more concentrated mm -hmm. to find more climbing, but can you kind of outline to give people an idea of how you did it so that maybe they can do it? What made you pick that climb in particular? Cause there are plenty of other climbs you could have selected in Utah. And then mm -hmm. also what made you pick that section of that climb? If you can work toward that direction. So this climb, I mean, I think the biggest thing for me is that it's steep, right? Like you get good bang for your buck. Um, and then the segment I chose, it's the most consistent grade the entire time. Like there's not very many, there's only like two flat spots. And then there's only one pitch where it was 22 and a half or 23%, which is steep, but it's short. Yeah. Plenty um, steep. <laughs> so then the other thing is it's a fast descent to get down. So I was turning around at the first switchback, which meant that I didn't have a lot of speed to even enter that switchback. So I really only had to break once on the entire descent and then break again at the bottom to turn around. Um, which was ideal. I think I like averaged like 48 or 49 miles an hour on the descent every lap, which is really fast. And, very fast. Um, yeah. That's, it adds up, you know, if you're doing 30 laps, you're going to need to have all the time you can on the descent. So, so that's one thing that, uh, is important to keep in mind is the fact that if you have turns and things you have to break for in the descent, multiply that all the times, all the times you have to descend and you start to lose some time. And then also the fatigue that comes with going through a long Everesting attempt, because I still think that it ended up being about 102 miles of uh, until you, 105 yeah. total. Yeah. So that's a long time. It's a long distance to be on the bike for anybody, right? So it kind of mm -hmm. makes sense in this case, if you're thinking about doing it to find a route with the least amount of turns and the least amount of points where you have to break. Because yeah. at the very least, it just makes a, a long thing unnecessarily longer if you do have the exactly. option to pick something else. And like, even if you're not going for the fastest time, you still don't want to be out there for, you want to be out there for as minimal time as possible, right? Like right. there's a big difference between 17 hours and 20 hours. And if you can get that for free by just picking a different route, then that's pretty cool. Right. So. Exactly. Uh, so when you, when you, can you give people kind of an idea? You said that it's, it's more or less consistent all the way up. It does. When you said flat spots, do you mean they're actually flat or did the grade just calm down a little bit? They seem flat. <laughs> yeah, okay. um, yeah. So at the bottom, I think it's maybe 7% um, where the gate is. Oh, that's, let me also go back here for a sec. The other reason I chose this climb is because it's still gated to cars. I think it actually opened today, which is three days later. So it's safer um, less stressful without traffic. And I mean, who doesn't like to ride on road without cars? So I was like, I'm doing this now. <laughs> this is the road. Um, yeah. so anyway, I started at the gate and maybe there it was, I want to say six or 7%. It's pretty mellow. And then it maybe kicks up to nine or 10. There's maybe one pitch at 15 and then it probably flattens back out to like six or seven. Mm -hmm. And then there's another pitch of probably 10 to 12. And then it flattens back out again to back six or seven. And then there's a steady, probably three minute drag of solid 10, 12%. And then it kicks up to that 23% switch back. Sheesh. Um, and that's where you turned around. And that's where I turned around every time. And like even the flat spots, I still was able to stay in the small ring. I never put it up into the big ring, except for the last lap when I was going all out. 
Got it. Um, so yeah, it was still flat. It's still pretty steep. Yeah. About how long did the, or how long was the lap in terms of distance? And then how much did you climb each time? So it was 1.8 miles each way. So it was about 3.6 or so round trip. I can't remember the exact distance. Um, and then the climb itself was anywhere between 13 and 14 minutes. I think my fastest was like 1238. Mm-hmm. And that was the last lap. And, and my, my slowest was maybe like 14 and 20 seconds, I think. So um, it was about that. And then the descent, my quickest time down was 210. Jeez. I think the slowest was like two and a half. Yeah, that makes a huge difference so, right there. Just a quick descent time. Exactly. I, like the thing is, it's a fun descent too. Like I, I had a good time pretty much every lap going down. So that's the other thing is you want to find a descent that you enjoy. Like there's enough turns that you don't have to hit the brakes, but you can still, you're kind of flowing and like mm-hmm. having a good time. Cause if you're going to do it that many times, you might as well kind of enjoy it. That kind of leads us into pacing. Was that time frame of 12 to 14 minutes of work offset by roughly two to three minutes of rest? Was that enough? Did you like reach the bottom and feel rested every time. And then from there we can get into the pacing. I think so. I mean, obviously like more rest would have been good, but then you're wasting time going downhill. So it's not good. So I think for this effort, it was about right. I felt pretty fresh every time I turned around. Um, but it was funny, like as the day went on, like first I'd turn around and my heart rate would stay at 140, 130 for a while. And then it would, by the top, it was kind of back up in the tempo zone. And then like, by the, by the end of the day, I was turning around immediately at 150 and then my heart rate would hit like mid 170s at the top. So it wasn't enough rest like yeah, at the end, but crapped up over the course of the day. What what's a max yeah. what's a max heart rate for you just for a point of reference for people? Like full gas like maybe hit 190. And is I that think. at elevation or sea level? Mm, I don't think it matters much to be honest. I haven't seen much higher than 190 anywhere. Got it. So. And this, it's it's also worth mentioning. We didn't mention this about the climb. It is at elevation, right? So, so what's the mm-hmm. elevation of the climb? So the starting the climb, or? I think was like, um, I think it was like fifty nine hundred at the base, and the top was right around sixty nine or seven. Got I think it. The average elevation was about six thousand feet that I spent, at least according to Strava or something. So how did you build out a pacing plan and how did that work toward the route or did that change your route selection at all? Like, for example, did you know that you could maintain a certain amount of power? So you looked for a climb that fit that, or once you found the climb, you just knew that you had to pace in a certain way. I mean, honestly, I don't think it mattered too much because you're going to be spending the same amount of time doing that work, no matter how long or short the segment is. So whether it's a 20 minute climb or a five minute climb, you're going to be doing that same amount of work climbing. It's just going to be broken up more. Um, mm-hmm. I don't think I would really would have wanted a longer segment because then that gives more time for your heart rate to ramp up. Maybe in a perfect world, 10 minutes would have been ideal, but that's when my heart rate really started to like hit high. was right around the 10, 12 minute mark. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, that's, I guess I don't, I'm not sure it matters too much. So like, I just knew how long I had to do it. And that's was like, and then for pacing, I kind of went back to white rim and I was like, well, the goal there was to do 280 watts for five and a half hours. And I really only did it for about four hours until I blew up out there in the desert. <laughs> so I was like, I should be able to do that 
same power here with support and proper hydration. And I talked to my coach about it and he's like, that's like, that you should be able to do that. Like, it's going to be hard. Like it's actually tempo. Like that is zone three. Mm-hmm. But if you do 270 to 280 every lap up, then that should be sustainable. So yeah, um, that was and, the goal. And with the descending in there as well, looking at the actual like time that you spent there just for the Everesting portion of it, like separating out because mm-hmm. you kept climbing after you got it just to be sure. Right. I um, did. Yeah. I was going to do 29 full laps just to be safe. Even though I knew it was 28 and a half. Was right. The actual. So you you're you had a normalized of two hundred and sixty five and then an average of two thirty seven. Mm-hmm. So even with the descending, that's impressive that and I guess it's you know short descent for the amount of time that you had climbing. Mm-hmm. But so yeah, that's pretty high. What's your what's your FTP and then what's your weight? Um FTP up at altitudes probably I'd say around three seventy right now, if I had to guess, give or take. Um and I think I weigh about hundred and forty one pounds. Okay. So that's, yeah, that's a high watt kg. That's very high. Um, so I mean, obviously if you're setting the world record every single time, that's probably the case, uh, but just the same on the pacing side of things, what made you think that you could ride at around 280 Watts? Was it, you, you mentioned the president of setting the FKT mm-hmm. or the fastest own time on white rim, but was that basically like you just knew that you could sustain that from training? How did you arrive at the power? That's yeah. I mean, kind of from training, like when I do my long, like four or five hour, like, like hard endurance or low tempo days, whatever you want to call it. Um, that's kind of about what I can do. Like I can go and ride 270 to 280 Watts pretty much as long as I want. Like, like obviously it gets hard. So I was like, well, if I can do it for four or five hours in theory, I should be able to do it for seven or eight. I mean, I never mm-hmm. done it, but like it makes, it's only, it's logical. Physiology says I can, so yeah, I'm going to try yeah, that's funny how that works, right? Because is the intensity factor, the percentage of your threshold that you're riding at, as that drops, you can extend that out for a lot longer. As it increases, like you can only hold it for a short period of time, right? Mm-hmm. But then as it drops down, drops down, drops down, and especially when you're talking about somewhere around, you know, like when you're talking about riding at 0. 0.7, 0. 0.6 really to 0. 0.7 IF, you can do that for mm-hmm. a really long time. As um, long as you're fit. Yeah. yeah, as long as you're fit. So, uh, it, with the pacing plan, when you were building that whole thing out, it was there, were there any concerns because you mentioned that you blew up at white rim? So were you concerned that the power was too high or what learnings did you take from your FKT attempt at white rim to into this? Yeah, for the white rim attempt, um, honestly, I felt the legs felt really good there. And I think what happened is it was just nutrition and hydration. I like didn't plan that out there it's uh, white rim is self-supported so you have to carry everything with you so it's kind of a balance of like well i think i maybe need this much water for five and a half hours and you kind of gamble on the lighter side because you don't want to carry gallons of water with you um i also like a white rim i should have ran water and drink mix i only had drink mix i figured as it's a low enough intensity that my stomach would be okay with drink mix but turns out it wasn't so my stomach locked up i couldn't eat I couldn't drink. So I basically ran two hours with one gel at the end. I think that's what like, that's what blew me to pieces there. So I was like, I felt fine until then. So I think with proper fueling, I was like, I should be no problem to be able to do that effort for longer. Got it. Now, what about the training side of things? Did you train specifically for this? You, I mean, right now, for those that are listening to this in the future, right now we're in the midst of dealing with the COVID-19 pandemic and lockdown restrictions. And as a result, racing mm-hmm. isn't happening. So uh, did you train specifically for this since you didn't have any events on the calendar or was this just continuing your training as normal? 
No, I mean, it's, it was kind of funny. It was like very spur of the moment. Um, I had been like pondering this Everest thing for a while. And um, for as far as training goes, we've just been training as if we're going to be racing in August or whatever my coach kind of has in the plan. So right now we've just been doing big volume. My last three weeks have been probably like 25 hour weeks, like with a couple, like, 1200 TSS. So they've been pretty sturdy weeks. Um, yeah. How big is that relative? Sorry, but how big is that relative to what you would normally carry? Um, it's, I think average throughout the entire year, I average about 20 hours a week. So it really isn't, it, it was a little bigger than normal. It's just like base season. It's like back in January. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's not huge, but not, not that big relatively speaking. So, um, kind of has been doing that. And I'd done some tempo, lots of like over geared work, um, like strength endurance. Mm-hmm. Um, but I hadn't done anything. I hadn't done any LT, like basically nothing more than 320 watts for a while. Aside from some sprints. So. so, so when you say tempo and stuff, you're talking like, you know, that that's really getting into like that sweet spot range too. I assume like mm-hmm. you probably have still tipped into there, I assume at some point. Yeah. I mean, you float into that sweet spot, especially with your heart rate, right? When you're doing hours of tempo, eventually like you're going to float up and, Sometimes on those hard endurance rides, I'm like, well, I'm going to roll some, like some low threshold sweet spot here to go for a segment or like whatever. Mm-hmm. So I spent a fair bit of time in that tempo sweet spot zone. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Did, so you didn't change your training at all for this. You just took the fitness you had and went with it. Exactly. And it's honestly, it's as far as like CTL goes, it's about as high as it's ever been or dang near, like it's pretty close. Um, so I was like, well, I'm about as fit as I've been. I've feel really good training. Um, this week, this past week was planned to be a rest week. So basically after that three week block, I took, um, let's see, we had Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, four days easy. I just did like some recovery rides and like one, two hour endurance day. Mm-hmm. Um, and then send an Everest on Friday. I figured it was like, I wanted to do it on a Friday rather than Saturday because I figured the road would be less busy with hikers and, um, whatnot. And also the weather looked better on Friday. The high was only 66 instead of like 72. Mm-hmm. So yeah, heat, heat plays a difference for a sure. Cause you're, that climbs, that climbs exposed too. Right. So the heat, heat didn't yeah, matter. It's, it's South facing and there's normally like a little bit of a tailwind. So you get really hot, even 60 degrees feels like 80 on that climb. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so, uh, on the training front, and we'll get into what you learned actually when you executed here and like the things that you would advise others on doing or what you learned about your execution. But having done it now, would you do you think that you're just continuing with the training that you had was a good approach? Or if you were really going for this, would you change the way that you trained at all? Um, I think my training is was pretty good for it. I mean, if I was going to specifically train for this, maybe I would have done a couple six hour rides like it's been a while since I've done a six hour day. I've done, I did quite a few five hour rides, but maybe it was, maybe we've thrown in some six hour days. Um, maybe would have done a little longer tempo efforts. Um, but honestly, not really. I don't like my threshold was high enough now and like my fitness was there. And I don't think you need much more than that. Like you just need a high threshold and you need good fitness. You don't need any VO2. You don't need really any LT work. Yeah. You just need to be able to sustain that like, steady tempo sweet spot for a very long time. Yeah. For however, however long the <laughs> however segment long. is that you're repeating, right? Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so in, on the equipment side of things, 
what gearing did you pick for for this one? That's a super steep climb, but granted, since your power to weight ratio is so high, it's we'd have to normalize it here a little bit. But what gearing did you pick? So normally, like the normally the gearing I have my bike is a uh, fifty two thirty six up front, and then I run an eleven thirty two in the back. I like to have like I live in Utah, so there's a lot of climbs, and I normally like to have a relatively small gearing just because like. I don't like to be grinding up all the climbs. And then I had the 52 up front because like for group rides this winter in Tucson, I was like, well, I need to have that 52 so I don't get dropped and I can win the sprints and, you know, try and actually be competitive in that stuff. Yeah. Um, that's normally what I use. But then this week with Everest, I stole my girlfriend Sophia's compact rings <laughs> off, off one of her bikes. So I borrowed her 3450. Mm-hmm. So, um, and then you run um, a Shimano drivetrain, so you can just swap the rings over. You don't have to worry about BCD or anything like that. That's easy. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So I had, uh, I ran a race, so I was able to just, her Holtegra rings slapped right on there and it was, we were good to go. And I did do like a test run with my Everest, like out my longer segment originally with the 5236 and it was close, but in order to hold on to like 80 and 90 RPM of the steeper grades, I needed like, I had to do like 300 Watts and I wanted to keep it between 270 and 280 so i was like okay we'll just drop into a 34 should do it yeah so the only place i had to drop below 70 rpm was that 122 percent grade and i just like stood up and just did like 320 watts for the 40 seconds or whatever it was it was in the end i think it was actually good because it forced me to go hard for just a second and then i turned around immediately and got rest so i think it was okay uh what what power meter were you running for context for folks uh, too so i had a, a four i power meter still yeah. a left only and then a wahoo element bolt on cool. the, for the head unit did you do anything to your bike in particular to like make it extra light that's like a huge topic for everything and granted yeah. and for good reason right because you're spending a lot yeah. of time climbing but did you do anything in that regard um yeah so i also i normally run the stands avion wheels um so i borrowed sophia's the grail cv7s which are i think they're like 250 grams lighter so I used those, and then I ran um, just a teeny bit of race sealant, <laughs> just like a <laughs> just little <enough. laughs> bit, just enough to seal the tires. Um, and then I also took off one of my bottle cages, um, took off my saddlebag, took off my blinky because it's a closed road. Don't need a blinky on a closed road. Yeah. Um, and yeah, I just took off all non-essential parts. Honestly, in hindsight, I almost get taken off the big ring, but. Right. Yeah. 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 Good point. Yeah. Uh, did you on the, the like apparel side, what you were actually wearing, what helmet did you use? Cause you're, you're a cask athlete, so you can probably switch mm-hmm. between an arrow or a climbing helmet. Yeah. So I've got the utopia and the protone and I chose a protone just cause it's a bit lighter, a little more well vented. And I was like, oh, I'm only going to average about eight miles an hour on the climb. And then the descent, it's so steep that you're just rip in any way so i wasn't really too concerned about aero gains so i went for the lighter helmet with more ventilation yeah i mean if you're tipping over like probably the 13 mile an hour mark at that point you'd probably want to consider right but yeah i'd say even yeah like even over 10 i might have considered the aero helmet yeah but it also depends on the heat too like if you're going to be happier or more comfortable with the uh the non-aero helmet then you should wear that yeah i can't help but think that like you'd have to be really, really extremely fit or have a very unique climb to be able to climb, you know, around 13 miles an hour for an Everest. Right. And it's, I mean, and my average case, speed was 13 and a half with that like 50 mile an hour downhill. So like right. still barely even touching arrow, arrow gains. 
yeah. with the descent. And the descent was so fast, I'm braking and whatnot anyway. So yes, if you're ever applying brakes, then at that point, you know, your aero gains don't, don't exactly. matter. You know, <laughs> yeah. Like I was super tucking, but that's mainly to get a change of position because it's a lot of work to like bend really low. So I yeah. found it was less effort to sit on the top tube and just like crouch. So yeah. that's the main reason I was doing it. Yeah. Yeah. That's fast. Uh, on logistics, how did you, so you mentioned you had one bottle cage mm -hmm. and then did you have people supporting you? Where were they positioned on the climb? And then how did you work on carrying things on you? Yeah. So I, this, I put a fair bit of thought into, cause I was like, I really don't want to carry anything. All I carried was my stand start and one small CO2 in case I flatted somewhere. Um, so otherwise I was just grabbing stuff. So we set the feed zone up at the bottom. Um, both my parents were there plus some other friends came and went throughout the day. Um, we had a table and easy up all that stuff, bunch of extra water. And then for the bottles, I think I made, I made like 20 bottles in total, but I only filled them like this much, basically just like a few big swigs. So yeah. I would take the bottle, take a swig, put it in my cage and then do another swig at the top and then chuck it at the bottom, get a new one. And then how we had it set up is the feed zone was far enough up from the gate at the bottom that as I was coming down, I would just like shout over and say, Hey, I want, I want to goo this lap or fig Newtons or I want chews and then, or I'd want water or I want monster hydro or I want my mix this lap. So I would like just tell them kind of what I want preemptively. Or sometimes if I thought about on the climb, I'd text my mom and say like, Hey, can I, can I, can you please make me more of this, this or whatever? <laughs> you were texting um, mid Everest. <laughs> yeah. That's funny. <laughs> I figured it was easier than shouting sometimes. So, right. um, we, we, like, hey, can I get some more goo mix this lap? And or can I have Monster Hydro next one? So yeah. it's easy to send if you you know short little texts. A quick aside to this is, and actually an important detail that we left out is, uh, and the reason I'm bringing this up is because I was texting him and he was texting me throughout this. But uh, your your housemate Ryan Standish and good friend, he was also Everesting at the same time, mm -hmm. uh, and kind of your motivation as well as his and in, in a lot of ways and his absolutely was to raise money for bike MS, uh, mm -hmm. which you can, can you explain some context for that? So then people can understand. Yeah. So kind of how, how I roped Ryan into this, um, it was kind of like my scheme to do this whole thing. And my main, like originally I was like, oh, I just want to do this to see if I can do it. Like, this just sounds like an awesome challenge. And then I was like, man, it'd be really cool to like, like, get some money together and donate to an awesome charity. Like, I think this is a good opportunity, like to spread the word. Um, and like, I couldn't think of anything on top of my head that like I deeply like cared about as far as that goes. But I knew that Ryan had been, has done this like bike MS fundraiser the past couple of years. And I was like, Oh, if I can't think of something myself, I really want it. Like if I can help Ryan make this like even bigger than it ever has been, then that'd be really cool. So I called Ryan up Monday, like midway through my recovery, right? I had this idea pop in my head and I was like, Hey, will you Everest with me? If we can raise a thousand dollars by Friday for bike MS, his goal was 3000 at the time. Mm -hmm. And he is like, absolutely. I'll do it. And I was like, all right, got it. So we did that. <laughs> we raised a thousand dollars within like a matter of hours. It turns out people want to see Ryan climb. <laughs> yeah. Um, he's, he's not built like you. He's, he's no. probably like 160, 170 pounds, somewhere around there. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, yeah, we raised all that money quick. And then after that, we're like, well, now how, how like, what, we got to keep this going, do something cool. So Ryan said he'll climb a, an extra foot for every dollar over a thousand that we raise. So 
he ended up climbing like 32,000 feet, almost did Mariana's <laughs> trench. Yeah. So, yeah. <laughs> um, after he Everested, still pretty fast. Though. I mean, I think he Everested like 10 and a half hours. Yeah. With some stops. Like he wasn't like going, and he was doing a longer segment with more switchbacks and more climbing. So he yeah. did like 20 laps, I think was his segment. And texting. Um, so. And texting. Yeah. And, yeah. <laughs> yeah. All that. Yeah. Yeah. He's, uh, so that was, that was awesome of him to do that. His father actually was diagnosed with MS a number of years ago and, and it's definitely like affected, affected Ryan. And I think it was a really cool thing to, to see him do because his event, usually the fundraiser that he has going on mm -hmm. for everything else, it was canceled this year. So, um, good yeah, on you and cool Ryan that. for doing that. Yeah, it was cool. If you do want to donate also to Ryan's fundraiser, to his fundraising efforts for bike MS, you totally should. And you can just find him on Instagram, go to Ryan Standwich. And you can find him there and continue to donate. I know Jeff Kabush donated a hundred dollars like at the last minute. Um, <clears throat> and he had to climb a yeah. hundred extra feet. <laughs> yeah. So Ryan came down, he thought he was about done. And I was like, Hey, Kabush just donated an extra hundred bucks. So you better get up there and do another lap. Um, and the link is also in my Instagram bio. Cool. Awesome. And it's and in like on some of the like cycling news, fellow news. I have the hyperlink into. So what's the, how can they find you on Instagram? Uh, Kegels 99. Cool. Uh, so getting back to it a little bit on the aid station location. So you had them at the bottom, you told them what you needed as you mm -hmm. passed them and then turned around. And then just a little bit later, you'd pass them climbing up. You took a sip, a swig of your bottle, put it back in. It was only a partially filled bottle, took a swig mm -hmm. at the top. Uh, how much water did you take in or how much liquid did you take in during that whole time? And what did you drink? So I was aiming for about um, a bottle an hour total. Maybe like I might not have hit that. Maybe I went a little over some hours. Um, so I was, I'd say probably 70% of what I drank was drink mix, just like a lighter ratio of the goo roctane mix. Uh -huh. um, and then the rest was water or monster hydro. Got it. And I had maybe three like full bottles of monster hydro in total, maybe a little less. Yeah. Hard to say. Which that that's um, going to bring on caffeine and then sugar as well. It's kind yeah, of like so a it's kind of like a sports drink with caffeine, right? Yeah, and yeah. there's about 188 milligrams per bottle, so it's quite a bit. It's a good way to get in, like to keep your caffeine topped off, and as well as hit a little extra sugar on top of the drink mix. So, yeah, yeah. Uh, what did you eat when you were on the yeah. bike, and how did you um, work that out? So I kind of talked to my nutritionist the day before. I was like, hey, I'm doing this dumb thing tomorrow. <laughs> day before. Um, <laughs> uh, how can I get, what's the best way to get 90 grams of carbs an hour? Because I figured that was a pretty good number. Um, mm -hmm. I, train, I normally train with maybe a little less, like 70, but I figured I could handle a little more for this big thing. Mm -hmm. um, so he suggested using um, like a mix of goo gels, goo chews, and real food. Um, so I was kind of started off with more real food, um, and then slowly transitioned to more and more goos. Um, but I still was trying to alternate just to keep my stomach, like keep it interesting. Um, and just keep the stomach happy. Cause I think if you do one thing I learned from white rim is if you just solely go off of goos and chews, then your stomach, they're just a lot of like the same thing. I think just a lot of sugar. Um, so you want to give it some slower stuff to process. So I had some fig Newtons, I had some donuts, I had some pancakes. I made some like like white bread, peanut butter and jellies, really light on the peanut butter, mainly just for flavor. Um, and that all tasted good. And I had options for everything. I had every flavor of goo I had in the house. <laughs> and I had multiple flavors of chews. Um, 
and you just want to have options. You know, you never really know what you're going to feel like. Like there was one lap where I was like, I don't feel like eating that. But then I was like, oh, happy trails, like beer goo. I'll eat that right now. So like <laughs> you just want to have like different flavors and different things to keep you motivated. When it got down to executing and actually making it happen, did you pick a time of day in particular for this? Uh, we're, we're obviously right now for the Northern Hemisphere, at least it's it's longer days are going on mm -hmm. right now. But how did you pick the time of day? Was that an important detail or you just went when you went? Um, we So I looked at the weather and I was trying to find a time where it was warm enough that I didn't need leg warmers and that I wouldn't need all that winter gear. Cause it's still cold in the mornings here. So mm -hmm. Um, I figured about 8 a.m. was going to be a nice time. It was going to be about 48 or so. So mm -hmm. I think I ended up riding at like 8.15, so I was being a little slow. <laughs> but uh, and it was perfect. It was nice. I mean, didn't get really get cold. And the uh, the hottest it got all day was maybe 70 degrees. Cool. So like, perfect. In the sun. So Yeah. Uh, did yeah. you – what was your pre-race breakfast and how did you time that? Um, pre-ride so I should say yeah Not race. <laughs> I kind of went off yeah normally for pre-race I normally do like two and a half to three hours but for this event since I was starting a little slower and so long I was like I should be able to handle like hour and a half to two hours before um, plus I get a little extra sleep that way mm -hmm. um, so I went for just two massive pancakes with peanut butter oh I put chocolate chips in them too because I was like extra KJ's awesome <laughs> <in there. laughs> so chocolate chip pancakes with uh, peanut butter, banana, some Greek yogurt, um, and coffee, and that was the pre-breakfast. Cool. And a lot of uh, a lot of uh, hydration too with breakfast. Looking looking at your ride right now, uh, like I said earlier, two sixty five normalized, two thirty seven average, and just for the Everesting portion, it was seven oh five or uh, seven forty, uh, mm -hmm. seven forty oh five, and you ended up actually going through that you did burn looking at here on trainer road 6,538 kilojoules uh, or 6,500 mm -hmm. kilojoules I should say throughout that process that's that's a ton that's a lot um, that's yeah. a ton to take in did you find that you had to adjust either your pacing or nutrition plan or anything else coming in what did you realize while you were executing that you had to ad lib and change on the fly um actually as far as pacing goes I think it was pretty good um i did like with a few laps to go i was like i think i can go a little harder like so i just emptied the tank um mm -hmm. and like in hindsight i'm like i wonder if i could have tacked on five watts every lap to go a little bit faster and spread that out but maybe it wouldn't have mattered because i made up a minute the last two laps going faster mm. so like maybe that would have been the same anyway but it would have been more of a gamble because maybe i would maybe i couldn't have done that and maybe it was better doing what i did so hard to say there on pacing but I think I, I think I nailed it as far as pacing goes. I was pretty close. How hard was it to pick it up at the end? Like you're kind of like in the steady rhythm for so long. How, yeah. Was that like a psychological barrier to break through? Or you mentioned that you kind of felt like you could do it. So, so you went for it, but was that difficult at all just to change pace suddenly after doing it for so long? Um, honestly, it felt kind of good because I've been doing the same thing for so long and the last few laps, I was like, man, I'm not hurting enough. I can make myself hurt more. Like you need to go harder. Like <laughs> you're weird. Get, get on the gas. Like, I was like, I've been doing this for almost eight hours and like I, it hurts, but I think I can dig a little deeper. And if I'm going to do this, I might as well get as much out of it as possible and try to make my time as fast as possible. So I figured I'd drop the clutch and give her. So I just rolled up the threshold and I held threshold like halfway up the climb and then I blow up and limp at the top of like 270 and then I did it again the second to last lap and that was it. Um, 
yeah, so I think pacing was pretty close. Hmm. Um, and then with nutrition, I did decide that I kind of wanted um, a little more drink mix than I anticipated. So I ended up like texting my mom and asking if she could mix up some more drink mix out some of the water I had made. Um, other than that, I think everything went pretty well. Like, there's not much else I'd changed, to be honest. Yeah, smooth as far day. As, like all that goes. Yeah. What would you, so now that you've done it, uh, first of all, how hard is everything compared to the other things that you've done? Because uh, you're your current national champion in XCO in the United States, uh, pro national champion. Like you mentioned, the White Rim FKT record. You've won plenty of epic rides races. Uh, where does it rank in terms of hardness? I'm sure it's also just very different, but. I think in total, it's the hardest thing I've ever done on a bike. Like if you're combining the mental and physical side of it, um, it was just like the first few laps, like I was like, wow, like I still have 27 laps to go. (laughs) What am I doing? Like my dad was riding next to me on my e-bike and I was like, this is so dumb. Why am I doing this? And then like you just get into the rhythm and, um, yeah, I think mentally it was kind of difficult at the end. Like when you realize you have like, I was six hours in and that's when it started to hurt and everything started to load up. Your heart rate's creeping up the threshold, even though you're only riding 270 Watts, whatever I was doing. Um, and then like, I was like, man, I still have an hour and a half left. This is like, like <laughs> an hour and a half isn't very much, but yeah. at the same time I was like, that's an XCO race I have left. <laughs> like, that's a lot, you know? Yeah. Um, so I'd say that was, yeah. It was definitely, the, it was the hardest thing I've ever done. I think like white rim, I suffered more because mm-hmm. I ran, like I was dehydrated and I also get off my bike and walk up Schaefer climb for a bit. But this suffering was so long and drawn out, like that, like mentally too. I was like, I'm doing like 29 of this and this is just a lot to wrap my head around. And I think one way that, one thing that really helped me was I didn't really ever look at the total time on my Wahoo. I just had a lap screen. And I just would lap it every time and just taking off laps. Like, all right, here we go. I knew my time. I did get to this side. I did get the halfway of the climb in like eight minutes. And I was here at 10 and I was just focusing on the little things like lap by lap, piece by piece. Yeah. Instead of so, letting, instead of thinking of the, the 20, 28 and a half laps or 29 laps you had to do, just think of the smaller segments. Yeah, exactly. That's how I get through. Like my coach has me do 10 by 10s, like 10, 10 minute intervals. And I break it up like, all right, well, once I two, do two, I've only got nine left and I just like break it down and play mind games. So I figured I'd do the same thing, but for eight hours and it worked. You know? Yeah. Yeah. So. It's, it, our, 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 we're smart creatures, but at the same time, it's easy to make to, to work the system a little bit. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, having ever said, what advice did you give to other people that want to do it? Like, what did you learn from this process on execution that you feel like you would want to pass to somebody else that wants to do it? That's listening to this. I think the biggest thing is find a climb that you enjoy and find a climb that suits your ability level. You know, like just because I picked a climb that's 11% average doesn't mean you should. and doesn't mean you have to like, if you need a climb that's 6%, 7%, like whatever, just pick it and do it. And if you want a climb that has switchbacks, like, and you want to do it, that's fine. Like just cause you're going to be a little slower downhill. If you're going to enjoy doing that climb more, like just think you're going to be doing this a lot and you're going to be spending a lot of time out here. So I, that's big. Um, if you have to ride a mountain bike on the road to get the right gearing, like do it, like, doesn't matter what you do. Like, as long as you're doing it and you're going to have like a good cadence, and you're going to like enjoy yourself. Maybe you need the more upright position. Um, so I think that's kind of the biggest thing is like, 
pick a segment somewhere that you actually love. Like I'll be able to go ride Pine Canyon, do intervals on it next week. I'm still going to love it. Like it doesn't matter. So I think that's the key. Cool. Anything else that you'd want to say to somebody that wants to do it? There's in terms of, uh, execution, pacing, equipment, anything like that. Um, nutrition, make sure you find a good support crew. Like whether it's your wife, your husband, your girlfriend, just some buddies, like you have to have people to help you. Cause it, it'd be a lot to take on on your own. Like even with both my parents there and some friends helping, it was still a lot of work for them. And like, I'm grateful for that support. And I think like you need to have people to help you do it. And also to have people along to help to do some laps with you. Like I had like Brandon Peterson, one of the bear development kids did seven laps with me. Uh, my buddies, Chris did, uh, I think he did five with me. Um, and there were some other random people that just do one and then they'd take off and keep continue with their ride. So I think like having people to say like, yeah, you got this, like, just keep going like that was pretty big so if you can have a buddy jump in for a lap or two it's it's always nice to have that company awesome cool yeah. well anything else you'd like to add keegan i don't think so i'm glad it's over <laughs> <laughs> i bet it's amazing but, looking at this and then thinking about and yes of course i was going to squeeze this in at some point but when i ever said it took us 26 hours 26 so that's insane 19 hours longer than what you did now granted it, you know, wasn't, we didn't do an exact everything thing or anything else, but absolutely insane and a super impressive result, man, to be able to do that. Uh, I, Thank I you. I'm curious to see how long that lasts, if it lasts, who takes it on. I'm sure that you look at it and you think of like, oh yeah, I could probably knock some time out of it in X, Y, and Z too, but that's oh, just seriously I learned, impressive. I a few things, so uh, <laughs> yeah, thanks. Yeah, sure thing. I would be curious for you, a question mm -hmm. for Trainer Road. Mm-hmm. How, like how if, if I were to do the exact same segment um, at sea level or like from roughly sea level, like how much fat, like just how much faster would I be able to do it? You think like just with power wise, like you think I could hold 300 watts, you think I could hold 290, and how would that equate in minutes to a faster time? I guess yeah. like, I've thought about that. I just was curious. Like obviously you can't replicate the same segment down at sea level, and there's a lot yeah. of variables, but I'd be curious. Yeah. You know? I would think that you'd be somewhere around like seven to 10% more capable of outputting or like putting out a higher, because basically your threshold will raise roughly from mm -hmm. 6,000 feet up and up like that. You're probably going to be somewhere around six to 10%, I would assume. That was my uh, guess. Too. Just how that equates to the to minutes over the whole time would be kind of interesting to see. But yeah. And air density probably doesn't matter all that much because I you're not climbing so. that fast in terms of like, you know, breaking through aerodynamic drag. Yeah, it'd be interesting. Um, we'll dig into it, and people should join that conversation. We can we can opine and, and and guess and do all those sort of things in the forum. If you go to if you just search for the Trainer Road forum or go to trainerroadcom slash forum and look up this episode, which basically it will be you can find it under Keegan Swenson Everesting. You'll be able to find it there. Uh, we're, we'll dig into some things and nerd out and figure out a bunch of stuff. I've even built up like a Google spreadsheet that's super basic that just allows you to basically put in the distance and what you've gained to see how many laps it's going to take, uh, to see how many climbing miles you'll have, how many descending miles you have, and then to hit any sort of time goal, you can basically adjust that to see how fast you'd have to go through the whole thing. So uh, we'll we'll put that spreadsheet in there, plenty of other things. Uh, and if you want to, you can actually add Keegan in there. I think it's just the same thing, Keegles99. Uh, you can add him in there, and then I'm sure he'll see those notifications yeah. too. 
be able to jump in. Definitely so. happy to help answer some questions. If you're watching this on YouTube, give it a thumbs up if you enjoyed it. That would be hugely helpful because then other people that maybe want to do Everesting attempts like this, they could find this information. It might be helpful to them. And then also drop us a comment down below to tell us uh, either, number one, how impressed you are at that time, but then number two, also what you want, would do if you were Everesting to try to get like a faster time. And if you see any low-hanging fruit that maybe Keegan could improve on, let us know and it'll be make for some fun discussion. So thanks everybody, and we will talk to you next time. All right, thanks guys, see you.